than the meditation of our hearts. Be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our salvation. Amen. Some speeches are written and then given. Some speeches are not written and still given. And then there are some speeches that are written and not given. Let me give you a couple of examples. On June 5, 1944, President Dwight D. Eisenhower, not President, General then, Dwight D. Eisenhower, commander of the Allied forces at the time, gave the decision to launch D-Day the following day. That would be June 6th. It was a massive undertaking. I don't know this, and I didn't do the research on this, but it may have been the largest military group of supplies and logistics ever brought together for one battle. I think it may have been. Nearly 3 million troops, 4,000 ships and boats, and 1,200 airplanes were gathered mostly on the south part of, of England, ready, prepared to make the invasion into Western Europe. Eisenhower saw all those moving parts, all those pieces, all that logistics. He also was aware that it could be very nasty weather the next day. He made the decision to invade, that is, on June 6th. The day before that, on June 5th, knowing that it could possibly fail, that is, the invasion, General Eisenhower wrote a speech in longhand, accepting the complete blame for the failure had it had happened. But D-Day, as we know, was successful, and the invasion marked the beginning of the end of World War II. It was a speech never given. Perhaps the most poignant speech, at least in recent history, prepared but never given, was given in July of 1969. Let me set the table for that speech. The United States and the Soviet Union were engaged in a race in that period of, of modern American and Russian history to get the first human to land on the moon. Apollo 11 had launched from the United States on July 16th, and by, by July 20th, it was circling the lunar landscape. The plan was for the lunar module connected to Apollo 11 to detach and come down to the surface of the moon, and then the astronauts, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, would get out of the lunar module, have a walk around, collect samples, all that sort of thing, and then return to the lunar module. They would blast off and they'd return to the spacecraft, Apollo 11, and then return to the world and to the United States. Now, everyone knew that the entire mission, Apollo 11, was complicated and risky, but everyone also knew that probably the most risky of all the parts of Apollo 11 was the landing and then the blasting off, especially again from the moon surface, of the Eagle, the lunar, lunar module. In fact, it was considered the very riskiest of all the parts of that mission. There was a possibility that when the Eagle tried to blast off the surface of the moon and return to Apollo 11, something would malfunction. 
And if that happened, the module could not return to the spaceship. They would be eventually doomed to a death on the lunar surface as well. They would die in one fashion or another. Now, had that happened, and when it was clear that there would be no return for Armstrong and Aldrin, the plan was that then-President Nixon would call the widows-to-be of Aldrin and Armstrong, would speak a brief message to the United States population, communications would be turned off, and that would be that. William Sapphire, Nixon's speechwriter, wrote a brief speech. It was only 11 sentences. You can find this still on a Google search and a computer search. The wives would be telephoned. Communication again would be ended. A clergyman, a minister, would commend the souls of the astronauts as they said it to the deepest of the deep. And the whole thing would end with the Lord's Prayer. Of course. We know that Apollo 11 was wildly successful and that in the end, this speech, one of the more poignant speeches never given, was never given. Go with me back 2,000 years. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ rose from the day, to, day on the grave on the day that we call Easter Sunday. Easter Sunday, Resurrection. Then for 40 days, he explained to his disciples and to others what his ministry involved, some of what he said, and some of what he meant. 40 days. Much of what he said in that time was included in the Gospels. But there had to be a whole lot more that might have been said, and probably was said, that we don't have. Now, this is not quite the same as the speech of Eisenhower and Nixon, and their speech is never given. But why, oh why, did Jesus not spend some time explaining some of the things he had said and done earlier with and through his disciples? Did maybe he prepare some speeches but never gave them? Or did he give some speeches but the disciples and the gospel writers never collected them and wrote them down? Don't know. Here's where I'm going. I wish that at one time in those 40 days, between resurrection and ascension, Jesus might have sat down with his, with his disciples and said something like this. Guys, I can, I can see that, that you're confused about some things. I hear the chatter. I hear the questions. I hear the murmuring. Now, I wrote down a few things last night. Here's Jesus saying. And I want to explain some things. I want to clear some things up that I said before my crucifixion and resurrection. Here's what I meant when I said on Monday, Thursday evening, this is my body and this is my blood. This is what I meant when I said, I'm going to send my Holy Spirit to be with you. This is what I meant that when I said that if a, if a person doesn't hate her father or his mother, they might not make it into the kingdom of God. Here's what I meant when I said, first I came to the house of Israel. That's what I meant. Here's what I meant when I said that I didn't come to abolish the law but to fulfill it. Whole bunch of topics I wish he would have knocked off at some time and explained. And told us, now that we stand here 2,000 years later, what he really did mean. Because there's some hard sayings of Jesus we're not so sure we really know. Let me take a little rabbit trail here. 
The Senate for the Study of Global Christianity out on the East Coast estimates that today that in the world there are probably 2.4 billion Christians, 2.4 billion people around the world connected to the Christian church in one fashion or another. It's about one-third of the world's population. In that whole body of 2.4, 2.5 billion people, there are now 40,000 at least denominations, groups, organizations, sects within one body of believers. There are more than 9,000 groups that call them Protestants alone. More than 9,000 organizations called Protestants. I am convinced that there would be far fewer divisions in Christianity today if Jesus had knocked off for two or three, four hours and given some clarity and some definition about some of these confusing and unexplained ideas and topics and teachings in the Christian church. Let me come back from the weeds. And if you really want to get things going, ask other Christians what they think about the end times, the end of the world. What's going to happen at the end of all that we know? Man, here's one of the most confusing and debated topics in the Christian church. It's a tree ripe with strange fruit, isn't it? Isn't it? Will there be a rapture? What about this millennium that we heard about in our second reading this morning? And the tribulation, when the Antichrist comes, will we recognize that person? What's up with this idea that Satan will be bound for a thousand years? Will the earth be transformed into a new Eden, or will we all be just blown to smithereens and sent into an alternate reality? It's going to happen. This morning, we are coming to the end of a very quick, fast trip through the Bible over the last two months, seven weeks. And appropriately, we come to the part of scriptures that deals with the end times. What's going to happen? And appropriately, we take a glance at, at the end, when Christ will come again, return in his glory. And if we are not careful about how we read some of the texts that are in front of us, if we focus overmuch on the details of what John and other writers of the sacred texts have given us, then it is really for easy for us to get deep into the weeds and we wind up missing the vision of our destination and we stay there. And in case there's any fog about this, our destination is to be with the Lord in eternity. The writer of the epistle to the Hebrews wrote in the very first words of the very first sentence of the very first chapter of his book that God has communicated with his people in many and various ways in the past. He was writing then in the first century. And that's true. God had communicated in language. Today we know from archaeology that there was language already 2,000 years ago or so. God communicated through his prophets, people who spoke from God to the people and for the people to God. There were visions in the daytime. There were dreams at night. One of the earliest, Joseph having this dream and interpreting it for 
the Pharaoh about the seven strong years than the seven lean years. And then there was a category that I would call not just dreams, but wild dreams. And I want to be clear, these were used by God to communicate. They are word of God. Things like the vision that Ezekiel saw in the first chapter, the vision of the wheel, as we call it, with four creatures, and each creature had four heads, and they had wings on, and they could travel with the speed of light. Man, that's some pretty wild stuff. And, and you read Revelation chapter 20, as we did this morning, as we heard read. Gosh, there's all kinds of stuff in there. The bottomless pit, and a chain, and a dragon, and a mark of the beast, and Gog, and Magog, and first death, and our first resurrection, and a second death, and a second resurrection. Again, pretty wild stuff. And let me repeat it. If we go off and try to identify every little detail in books like Revelation and other books of the Bible, it will be very easy for us to find ourselves in the weeds of the field of speculation. And sometimes we miss the message. When we read Revelation 20, as we heard read, we are not reading a newspaper. We are reading a drama. Or, or maybe we are watching a dramatic play. Or maybe in, in today's communication, we're watching something that, that would resemble an animated film with all kinds of characters and all kinds of strange costumes and strange effects. Lots of special effects that help us feel the message so that the message sticks in our imagination. Before Avatar, before Disney's Fantasia in the 1940s, all the way back to John in the first century, we've got these, these wonderful pictures of something that's hard to describe. And these are word of God, communications to us. As I said, if we allow ourselves to get into the weeds of speculation, the danger is that we may stay there. Is it fun to try to understand what might have been John's revelation in all its details? Of course it is. I've done it myself. Maybe you have as well. But if we don't keep a couple of thoughts in front of our reading and in front of our mind, it's easy for us to get distracted. The core message of Revelation and other parts of this kind of reading has two parts. First, the message in John's Revelation from start to finish, we put it all in, a, in, in one narrative, is that Jesus has won and that he is going to return to this earth for a victory lap. It's really about the Lamb of God, Mary's little lamb who finally sits in glory on the throne of power. John gave his revelation, his wild dream, to give his people hope when things can look bleak, when they can look scary. In the first century, doubtless when he wrote, or soon after, there were people who believed that they were only losers, some of them to the point, of course, of losing their lives. 
And John came along to say, in the whole sweep of things, you aren't losers. Because of Jesus Christ, you are winners. I am coming again, Jesus said. Last Sunday evening, the, the Kansas City Chiefs won the Super Bowl down in Glendale, Arizona. That was Sunday night. Game over. World champions, at least for another year. Chiefs won. Then this past Wednesday, they returned to Kansas City for a victory parade. Now, in the game, only 70,000 people or so could go. Only that many could attend because that's the capacity of the stadium down there. Lots and lots of other people would have, but there just wasn't any room. They returned, that is, the Kansas City Chiefs, to Kansas City. Anyone could attend on Wednesday for the victory parade. And it is guessed not only that anyone could, but that maybe a million people did attend that victory parade. On a spiritual level, from Good Friday to Easter Sunday, Jesus fought a spiritual battle against the forces of sin, separation, and Satan. Game over. Easter Sunday, it's done. Jesus wins. We read Revelation in order to understand that there is going to be a victory parade. Jesus Christ is going to come again. He'll come again in power and glory. And friends, we are all invited to the party. Room for everybody. The Lamb is on his throne. Once again, Mary's little Lamb. So the first part of Revelation has to do with Jesus Christ, and he will come again in glory. The second part has to do with us. Let, let me get to the second part this way. Like many folks, my wife and I got out of town for the last 10 days or so and found some sunshine and some warmer weather. Let me say that, that one evening my, my wife kind of hurt my feelings. Here's how it came down. One evening, I, I turned and asked my wife, Honey, in, in all your wildest dreams, did you ever see us sitting here in Southern California at this point in our life, watching the sunset over the Pacific Ocean and sipping some Cadillac margaritas? And she replied, Honey, in my wildest dreams, you are not in them. <laughs> Hurt my feelings. Might be true, might be not. Who's to say? By contrast, when we read John's wild dream, and, and I think it is a wild dream, we are in it. We're a big part of it. These words of God are first about the Lamb of God, no question. But they're also second about his redeemed, his saints. Those who will be gathered around the Lamb's throne who will stand with the Trinity in eternity, who will rejoice with their relatives, who will sing with the saints. And that's all part of the book of Revelation. For his reasons, for his reasons, Jesus did not choose to give a speech that laid out everything that he taught and everything that was going to happen, including at the end of time. I wish he had, but he didn't. What we do have are other parts of Scripture 
including the book of Revelation, that have some wild parts in them. Are they drama? Yeah, probably. Animation? Yeah, sure. Prophecy? No doubt. Something else? Ah, apparently. Many students of the Bible together just, just take all these parts of this kind of literature and put them in one bucket and they call it apocalyptic, which is just a 25-cent word for revelation. Do I understand all the elements of apocalyptic? Absolutely not. Of course not. Do I believe what this literature like Revelation intends to teach? That Jesus Christ will come again in victory and he will have a victory parade and that we will be included in this victory? Sure do. Absolutely believe that. The writer to the Hebrews continues, Hebrews 1 verse 1, In these last days God has spoken to us through a son, Maybe you find some of the points of apocalyptic literature confusing. I certainly do. But we can have clear confidence in other words of Jesus that are perfectly clear. In John chapter 14, verses 1 through 4, Jesus did give a speech. And he said, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms in it. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with you that you also may be where I am. Now that's a speech that Jesus did give. And that's a speech I understand. We sing, when Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart? Then I shall bow in humble adoration and there proclaim, my God, how great thou art. Thanks, thanks, and thanks be to God. Amen. There's a part